This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show, the award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hey everyone, Joey Romero. Back again with our I Survive Real Estate Legacy Series. The I Survive Real Estate Legacy Series is our series of interviews with Roni Award recipients. The Roni Award is given out every year at I Survive Real Estate to an educator or mentor that has impacted the real estate investor market and individual investors along the way. Hope you enjoy. Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris. Today, our special guest is Dykes Botiford. In 1981, a man named Jim Rohn taught a seminar that changed my entire life. A few years later, we created the Roney Award to honor investors and teachers who have changed the lives of people in our industry. Dykes Botterford has been uh, teaching people and changing their lives for a long time, and that's why he received the Roney Award. And um, he's been doing so for about 40 years. Dykes is a leading expert on how to hold property safely and has written a series of courses on how to protect your assets. He also has been involved in purchase of mobile homes, notes, houses, and apartments. His daughter, Dorsey, has also been involved in the business. She has her own flipping business for the last 10 years. So, Dykes, we welcome you to our show. Thank you, Bruce. I'm glad to be here. I'm just curious. Um, Dorsey, has she approached the business differently than you did because of maybe just learning some things from you that you did that you thought, you know, if you headed in a different direction or has she been pretty independent? Well, she's been pretty independent in, in a lot of respects, but one of the things that I think she benefited from is the experience of other investors that she's been introduced to through me and through uh, other investors as well. Uh, I think she's learned a lot about uh, what they did to grow their business and she's been able to uh, efficiently uh, grow her business in a lot of respects. Now, she uh, has come along a little different than I have, but uh, for various reasons. One of the things is that she got into private lending a lot sooner than I did uh, after I started uh, doing the real estate business. Uh, but uh, she's now a young mother. She had a, a, her first child uh, back in January. And uh, that's really uh, competing for her time right now, for sure. When you say private lending, is that because that's for using for her own property flips or she's actually in the hard money loan business at this point? Hard, hard money loan. Um, she is able to do that by using a, a wrapping technique uh, with some other investors so that they hold a first mortgage and she holds a, a second wrapped around there first. So she protects them. She takes care of all the collections. Uh, if there's a foreclosure to be done, uh, she handles that. Fortunately, we have very, very few of those uh, because uh, she also does all the due diligence up front for any loans that I make or any loans that she makes. What's great about her due diligence, she's in the flipping business. So she's, I, I read that she's pretty hands-on even on her own job sites. Right. Right. And it, she is not hesitant about uh, threatening foreclosure if we need to, to do a foreclosure because somebody is defaulted. 
Uh, whereas uh, a lot of uh, lenders out there are hesitant about taking over the property. They just want to get paid the money. We, uh, at a 60 to 65% loan to value, don't mind taking over the property. And actually, we make more. We get paid for handling problems. So her experience with the rehab uh, business uh, over the last few years is really a benefit for her because it doesn't scare her to, to take over a property. That's right. She's probably seen all the problems she's going to encounter already. So that, that doesn't bother her in the least. You know, one of the things that you said right. is, ver is very true is when you teach investors, especially you guys in Florida have a lot of very successful but repetitive clients. And I would imagine you've seen some things that you've watched and say, wow, I didn't know that would work as well as that it does for that guy. So we, we, we learn from students. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, every now and then in a class, uh, students say, well, here's something I've been doing. And, and uh, what do you think? And you start to answer and you realize, well, you did, you put a little twist on it there. And uh, it's something that I might should look into more. And so that gives us the impetus to, to, look at that technique, look at what they're doing, and maybe even improve a little bit further on it. Never know. When you started, well, first of all, did you have an influence of a teacher that said, this is, this is kind of the way to do this business? Was that, did you have that in the beginning of your real estate career? I kind of uh, floundered around in, in the beginning of my career because I didn't pick a particular uh, teacher to, to kind of follow. Uh, but along the way, uh, Jack Miller had a lot of influence on, on what I've done. Uh, and, all, and he did a variety of things in real estate, which I chose to also do because I get bored doing one thing all the time. And Jimmy Napier with his uh, invest in debt, buying discounted uh, cash flow streams such as mortgages and notes. And of course, Peter Fortunato is a good friend of, of ours uh, now, yours and mine, Bruce. Uh, Pete's always uh, yes. a good one to listen to and to, to hear stories of that he tells about the deals that he's doing even today. And he's been in the business. Since I, I don't know about you, but I have to hear it three times before I, it, before I understand it. <laughs> That's because he tells uh, one third of the story each time. So you got to get the different pieces to put it together because he's making a point. He, if he's making a point on, on one topic uh you'll only hear that part of the story so so i know exactly well, what's what you mean i've had to go ahead well what's interesting too it's um I, I i think when you get when you start there's a certain thing that you get trained to do and you think that's the way it's done and so when i first got right. exposed to the business the, the deal was buy for a discount for cash so i mean that's been my model my basically my entire life certainly for the first 25 years of the business. And so to meet up with a, a Pete Fortunato that's like creating deals from thin air, you kind of go, whoa, I, I, it's hard for yeah. me to comprehend that. Are you, right. were you ever attracted more toward keeping or flipping? Which, which was your preference? Well, I recognized early on that flipping was just a business that uh, if you go and get a house and fix it up and sell it, uh, you've given away the goose that lays those golden eggs. Uh, yeah, you may have uh, 
uh, money for the time being, but it's really no different than going to work for somebody else. And if you walked in front of the school bus and ended up in the hospital, uh, your flipping business pretty much stops right there. Whereas if you get rentals, you get small cash flow over a long period of time, and eventually that house is paid off. And now you have the all that equity that can be used to turn into cash or continue to invest. So that um, the, that is the way that I like to go is do both, do long term uh, investment rentals, and let the the uh, property grow and produce the income, and then uh, there's a, a large equity in the future, and also do the flipping property for immediate cash and for down payments for more rental properties. Okay. So I think more of them, uh, more than, than not, uh, the rental properties are the way to wealth, whereas the flipping is a way to put food on the table right now. Yeah, they are two different, two different avenues. I joined the let's keep houses uh, party way later. If there's one thing I would change in my career, I would have kept 10% of those homes that I flipped. That, that, is, that is a fact. I agree with you on that. When um, in your career, I guess I wanted to ask if you've discovered a formula for having the least problematic rental properties. So uh, what, is the, is, what is the type of inventory that you've landed on? And then I'm going to ask a couple of yeah. questions even more definitive than that. So Sure, um, sure. The difference, say, between owning a, an apartment versus a single family versus a mobile home. Right. Well, uh, comparing apartments to single families, the, the tenants in an apartment never expect to own an apartment building or even the building that they're uh, living in. Whereas a uh, single family house, uh, a nice family uh, that's in the single family house, uh, they don't, uh, they don't necessarily tell everybody they're renting. If people want to think that they're homeowners, that's fine with them. And they tend to take care of the property because they may want to buy that property and may want to buy another property in the future to live in. So I like the homeowner types that are going to, to bring their families and have a yard to play in and uh, flower beds to, that they can keep up so that they feel like that, that is their home. An apartment dweller is not going to feel that way. An apartment dweller is usually more transient than uh, a family in a single family house because one of the uh, one of the most expensive things you have is turnover with uh, any rental property because you have to do the fix up, clean up and re-advertise and requalify people. So if you can get someone in, in the uh, single family house to stay four, five, seven, 10, 12 years or more, that would be the objective that I would go for because I get that steady cash flow and I don't have that turnover. So I like the single family houses even uh, to uh, better than I like duplexes or triplexes simply because a single family house, uh, a young family take, will take care of it better than they will where they have other people on the same property. If you have a renter that's really have has had long duration, do you change the amount that you raise rents on an annual basis? Absolutely. Uh, keep the rents under market for those that stay uh, a significant amount of time and take care of the property. Um, when we are looking at rent increases, which we do every year, now that doesn't mean we raise them every year, 
but we look at them every year. One of the considerations is how well are they taking care of the property? How long have they been there? Do they do, do they fix the little minor things themselves? Uh, are, are we always called when there's a light bulb out or something, right. you know, which we have to tell them that's their responsibility to put a light bulb in. So, you know, we, we, we like good renters that uh, take care of the property, that send their checks in on time, pay their rent on time, and we don't hear a lot from them. Does the age of the inventory matter to you? How old the house is? It does matter in the initial due diligence of deciding whether we're going to buy a property or not. Uh, we know that uh, older homes have issues uh, uh, with settling and um, with uh, older appliances, older air conditioners, older roofs, and so forth. All that has to be factored in as opposed to a newer property that's only been uh, built in the last five years. Uh, we'll have less maintenance typically on that uh, five-year-old property than we do on the older properties. Now, the newer property will most times command a higher rent. So it's all a matter of analyzing during a due diligence period as to uh, do, are we getting a price that offsets the fact that we're gonna have more maintenance uh, and what kind of uh, renter is it going to attract compared to this other property that's newer? Florida's, one of the things that's new for me in Florida is that there's scattered lots. Um, so do you prefer a single family home in a track setting or a scattered lot setting? And the same question for a manufactured home. Well, for a regular stick built home, uh, I, it doesn't matter to me if it's in a subdivision or it's in, a, in individual lots within a city or suburb uh, area. What I look at is what is the makeup of the neighborhood? Uh, the houses immediately around it, are they mostly renters or mostly homeowners? I'd rather have the one, the house that's in the middle of mostly homeowners because there's pressure on any renter that I put into that house to maintain the yard and keep it up so that they are not being pointed to by neighbors as, uh, as not keeping up their property. Um, the, and, and that really doesn't matter whether it's a subdivision or, or just individual lots out there. So okay. it really, I, I really don't put a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know restrictions on on which I buy. Okay. Now you ask about manufactured homes, which normally we're talking about mobile homes. Uh, that's kind of the slang term that's used, even though mobile homes typically have not been built since the 1970s when the manufactured home HUD rules came into right. effect. Uh, but everybody still calls them mobile homes. I like mobile homes, particularly mobile homes on their own lot. Exactly. They're not in a uh, mobile home park or uh, manufactured housing park. Uh, I like the, the homes that uh, are a little bit uh, older, you know, eight, 10 years old or uh, out to maybe 20 or so years old. Uh, that's kind of a sweet spot. And those houses uh, will attract a good, um, a good type of tenant or buyer. You know, uh, I buy some of those homes and turn around and sell them on terms, which a lot of people that would live uh, in those homes couldn't afford to come up with the whole all the cash, and they're hard. The homes are hard to get financed through the conventional lending lenders and institutions. When you when you deal with a manufactured home, do you 
generally leave it in place or have you ever moved one onto a, a scattered lot? Yeah, I have moved a couple, uh, but I will tell you that if you want to cure the, want, the desire to move them, just move a couple. Uh, there's always <laughs> okay. headaches to it. And it's, it, it's gotten to be pretty doggone expensive too. So uh, I don't like moving the mobile homes. It, it, economically, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, as part of the deal, I like to buy them in place on the lots, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't do it in the future. It's just according to what makes the most sense in that particular situation. Do you have a, a, a lot size that you stay away from? You prefer what, what size lot? Well, it depends on, on what uh, is on that lot, because uh, if they need well and septic tanks, then you, got, you have a requirement for a larger lot, uh, usually half acre, three quarters of an acre lot uh, in this area. And I'm in the greater Atlanta area, North Georgia area. Um, but if it's uh, served by a city uh, or county water and sewer, uh, then you can have a smaller lot down to about a quarter to a third uh, of an acre lot. Those are also getting a little small. You're getting uh, close to your neighbors and it's not as comfortable as, as that uh, three quarters of an acre lot. So I do like a little bit larger lot size because I know the tenants or buyers uh, would like a little more land around them. Okay. Okay, let's let's shift gears. And for... that's true. Of, that's true of manufactured homes or site built homes. Okay. Same. Do you same have reason. a a size of home that you kind of stay with? Square footage in the home. Right. I like. Yeah, I like staying. Uh, now we're talking about a, a stick built home. I like fourteen hundred square feet up to about twenty two hundred square feet. Now I would go higher if the prices made sense. But that's kind of a sweet spot, three bedroom, two baths. Uh, and if I'm going to keep the property, I'd rather have brick as opposed to uh, siding, uh, painted siding. Uh, the brick has lower maintenance for a longer period of time and looks better for a longer period of time. The, on the uh, mobile homes, uh, I, will, I will take whatever I can get if the price is right, even down to uh, 500 square feet or so, which is a pretty small home. Yes. But uh, the sweet spot is probably in the 800 to 1200 square foot range with the, with the mobile homes. But uh, I've had larger than that. I've had 2,400 square foot uh, uh, homes, uh, manufactured homes. And uh, it's just a matter of what the price and condition is. Well, one last question about the type of inventory have you ever had a rental with a pool? No, I have not had a rental with, with a pool. I have had a, my own personal residence with a pool uh, for a number of years when my uh, girls were younger. And uh, I would not want a, a pool on a rental. It's just too much liability exposure. Okay. Matter of fact, we feel. All right. So now we can talk pools. about. I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. I said, we've uh, uh, filled in a couple of pools on rentals that we've purchased in the past. Okay. When you, when you advise people to hold title, there's usually two circumstances. There's somebody starting from scratch. So I, I'd like you to create the ideal sequence of how you would, you'd like them to hold title if they had, if they had nothing to correct. 
And then I'd like to well, go if, and go, go ahead. Let's do that one first. Okay. I, yeah. We start off with a, a newbie, someone that's just getting into real estate, no matter whether you're 20 something years old or 60 something years old, I say, learn about the real estate and about doing the deals. That's the most important part. See if you really want to be a real estate investor. So you might buy those properties in your own name, but once you get up to three or four properties, you need to start thinking about your exposure in the marketplace because your name is now starting to show up on uh, multiple records that anyone can go to the courthouse and look up and they can kind of guess what equities there are, see what kind of, uh, how big you are, what kind of target you might be from a litigation uh, standpoint. So uh, we like to keep our profiles low uh, and so we use, uh, and we want the liability protection. So we use LLCs to own the properties. Uh, now you may have a collecting LLC that owns all this, the single member LLCs underneath. The, each single member LLC owns three or four or five properties, depending on how much equity is in each one. If they're fully paid off, you may only have one property per LLC. And, the, uh, and that's the way that uh, you should keep it because you got the liability shield of the LLC. Yet, if it's a single member LLC, it's transparent for tax purposes. Now, as you get a little more sophisticated and learn how to do that, then you might want to add land trust to the mix. Land trusts are more sophisticated, uh, advanced uh, type of uh, deed holding uh, entity. And you, you have to understand how the land trusts work yourself because you're going to find very few attorneys that are up to speed on land trusts. It's not that hard, but it does take some effort to, to understand exactly what you should and shouldn't be doing. But you can have a land trust in every state. It doesn't have to be a state that has land trust law because land trust, if it's not in one of the seven or so states that have land trust uh, authorized, uh, it comes under contract law. Uh, between the trustee and the grantor. So, so take me through. I've I've bought my I've bought. I'm an escrow with my first property. I have the right to say who's the buyer. Do you want the original buyer? And I'm doing this to try to protect myself. I'm going to keep this one as a rental. Right. Do I put the if, original title in a land trust with an LLC as a beneficiary, or the opposite? No, you're you're right the first time. Uh, ideally, you would put the property into a land trust. And by the way, uh, try to, to make that decision before escrow because uh, the settlement agents like to see whoever the, the actual buyer is going to be on the contract because anything else is additional steps to make sure the seller is okay with who the buyer is going to be if it gets assigned. And you don't want to deal with all that. So, uh, whatever name you're going to use for the land trust really should be the one on the contract. Doesn't have to be, but it, it saves some hassle. So you move the okay. uh, property during the settlement and closing to the land trust. The beneficiary of the land trust is a single member LLC, which is then owned by either you or if you've got a lot of property, the collection master LLC I talked about uh, would own the, the, uh, own the interest in the single member LLC which owns the beneficiary interest in the land trust, which owns the property. <laughs> and you have a course that teaches this. I know you do. I do. I do. The biggest problem I find, Bruce, is that some uh, 
beginning investors that, that still don't have the, uh, a property or only have one property wants to set up a big convoluted structure that would work great for them if they had 20 or 30 properties, but it's overkill and a lot of, ha a lot of paperwork and time uh, to keep up for just having one or two, three properties. So you should grow, uh, you should grow your structure as you grow your portfolio. And don't get, don't make things more complicated until there's a, a justification for doing that. So somebody comes with to you, and that's sort of like the first uh, first thing, first time they've ever heard about protecting themselves. But they own they own a dozen right. properties already, and they have them all in their name. Mm -hmm. So what would be the right. sequence that you would suggest for somebody like that? Well, I'd, I'd sit down and talk to them about what their level of paranoia is. Uh, the houses that are already in their name is going to have their name in the courthouse records in the chain of title, even if they move them into an LLC or a land trust now. The good part is by moving them in a land trust now, if there's a liability that occurred yesterday or before, uh, that would come after, that could come uh, to bite them the investor directly. But after they put it into an LLC, the liability shield of the LLC helps protect them from going uh, going into the future. Okay. Liability insurance, are you, do you rely on that a lot um, for protection? Well, understand that since I've been in this business and I started in 1980, uh, the the exceptions page on um, insurance policies has uh, grown longer and the type has gotten smaller. In other words, there's more exceptions to uh, insurance now than there ever has been before, which means that, that the insurance company is avoiding a lot of claims that uh, they feel are, that they shouldn't be paying on uh, in, in relation to the premium they're collecting. So uh, I still think that the uh, best attorneys in the U.S. are retained by the insurance companies. And so therefore, I want to buy some of that uh, expertise by buying liability insurance on my, my properties. And if I have a problem come up and I turn it over to them to, to work out and they say, well, this is a claim that we don't cover, now I've got the liability shield of the LLC to fall back on. Okay. And even if I'm uh, buying just regular uh, uh, homeowner dwelling, or not homeowner, but uh, dwelling insurance for a rental property that I've got, I'm gonna have the, the um, liability as a component of that insurance policy. And if I get up to 20 or 25 uh, rentals, that's about the time that we all think about self-insuring. And yeah, you can save a good bit of money self-insuring, but don't ever, ever, ever self-insure for liability because liability can be way more than the cost of the house. Yes. Now you said, are you talking about when you say self-insure, you're talking about for the fire portion of it, that type of thing? For the fire and the hazard portion of it, uh, okay. some investors uh, feel like that if they can save those uh, premiums for three or four years, they could build another house. Uh, and that just has to do with what the expenses are for the houses that you already have.
Okay. Um, you know, coming from California, I'll tell you something that just is pretty amazing. Earthquakes are the thing in California. And yeah. an earthquake policy on the residents that I lived, uh, when I lived in California, my residents had earthquake insurance at a quarter million dollar deductible and the cost of the policy was $2,300 a year. So I was, hmm. was a little surprised when I came to Florida and Florida has policies that have a maximum 2% loss and they cost about, I don't know, 400 bucks. Uh-huh. And I'm just, I was just surprised. Yeah, it depends on, on where you are. Now, in Florida, you probably already have some sinkhole coverage as well. Right? <laughs> That's not an exception. And you wouldn't have that in California. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is for a lot of policies, but there are policies that still cover sinkholes. Okay. I gather you've, you're, pretty, you're pretty familiar with the guy that writes your insurance policies. Well, I tell you, every investor should have a, a good knowledge of uh, property insurance. For instance, one one aspect that uh, I find is uh, a lot of times misunderstood is what's called co-insurance. When you have a policy, the it should be a replacement policy. And the replacement policy means that if you lose uh, the, uh, let's see what, if you lose the whole house, that the insurance company would build back the house or, or provide the money for you to build back the house. So you want to yes. always make sure that the uh, value of, of the policy, the coverage is at least 80% or more of the uh, actual cost that it would take to replace the house. And if you let it drop below that 80% and you have a loss, the insurance company can come in and reevaluate everything and say, hey, you know, you were supposed to have, you should have had $100,000 coverage here, just as an example. And uh, you have only 70000 of the coverage. Well, if they did that, what the, you would have to do is first pay your deductible. And then after the deductible, the insurance company would pay 70 cents of each dollar for rebuilding the house. And you would have to come out of pocket 30 cents. However, if you had, in, uh, had uh, insured that house for at least 80%, in other words, $80,000, uh, then uh, the insurance company would, uh, after your deductible, after you paid your deductible, the insurance company would pay dollar for dollar everything it takes to rebuild that house. Okay. And that's something simple, but I find very few investors know that. No, I think you're right. I think most most people try mm -hmm. to save money on their insurance. As a hard money lender, you know, we get policies right. all the time when we know darn well the property is going to be vacant. Somebody tries to pass off a rental policy as insurance. Yeah, exactly. And uh, talking about hard money lending, uh, you know, we, we want the rebuild price of the house to be insured. And the borrower typically only wants to insure the amount of the loan. Well, think about it. If we've got a 50% loan-to-value ratio, which is a good loan-to-value ratio, uh, and that's a $100,000 house, and they're only insuring $50,000, and then there's a total loss for whatever reason, one of your fires comes through and gets it, then the insurance company is going to say, well, it's a co-insurance situation. You pay $0.50 cents of every dollar in rebuild cost. And as uh, and I think that's the house that the investor is going to walk away from. And you don't want that if you're a hard money lender. You want to make sure you're covered. Right. You want an incentive there to 
get to the finish line. Absolutely. Yeah. We're just about out of time. I wanted to ask you about how you got into teaching and, uh, I know that's a passion of yours, but well, not everybody that knows what to do wants to teach. A lot of people that don't know what to do want to teach. You're one of the rare people that know how to know <laughs> what to do and love to teach. Well, I had worked for about 11 years uh, with the real estate before I decided to teach. And what was happening was I was the president of the local real estate uh, group. And people knew that I was doing these different things and they'd call up and I'd spend an hour or so on the phone talking to them a couple of times a week or a month, uh, explaining to them what uh, what they needed to do if they wanted to do the same thing. So I started teaching some little classes at the local RIA and that just kind of grew. One of the national guys saw me and asked me to come teach at one of his weekend classes and I did that. And it just kind of grew from there. It was a, it was a sideline for uh, quite a number of years and it still is pretty much a sideline. Uh, for me now. I don't uh, go around the country speaking. Uh, people come to Atlanta or right now we're doing, uh, we're doing some of these Zoom meetings uh, for, for uh, information. But the reason I got into teaching uh, was not only people asking me questions, is I, I have a need to learn in depth anything that I'm doing. And so by researching things, it, an excuse to to pay that for that three or $400 law book or whatever uh, was uh, to, you know, teach somebody else the same thing. And if you ever want to learn anything, teach it because teaching, you realize that you've got to know more than just it, just doing it yourself. You got to know the nuances because people face a lot of different situations trying to do the same thing. You know, what's interesting about what you said is that a lot of speakers do not like Q&A sessions after, because they've said 100% of what they knew when they talk. Right. And someone like you or me love Q&A because we've got to tell 10% of what we know because of the time frame, And that makes it even yeah. more fun, you know, when you start batting around in, in, in front of people, real, real circumstances, then you also, you know, that, that comes to fruition. What you're saying is that it really helps to know much more than what you've just said. Right, right. Yeah, one of the things that struck me early on was uh, Jack Miller and uh, Pete uh, Fortunato and uh, um, Jimmy Napier would have help days or help evenings where for four or five hours, they just sat up on, on a stool in front of the room and people asked them questions. And there never, never was an agenda, didn't say you're restricted to asking questions on just this or that. They could ask anything. And those guys would say, well, that's an area I haven't gotten into, so I can't answer that. Or they say, okay, here's what I did. Mm -hmm. Or here's what, here's what I've seen others do. And uh, just answer the questions. And that was always impressive to me. Yeah, that's a, it's a very nice thing to do too. Um, when people, when people talk to you, let's say they're a customer or they're selling their house, or whatever, what they probably don't realize is you've probably had a thousand conversations or more about the subject. And if your heart's in the right place, it's really smart to talk to somebody like yourself that has experience because you're not going to, you're not going to learn on your own but uh, that quickly, but if you have a, if you have a problem situation, 
and talk to somebody like a like what you're saying, like Pete Fortunato. It, mm -hmm. who, who wouldn't want to sit down with Pete Fortunato and say, here's my problem and have the guy throw 10 solutions at it. And uh, by the way, right. you're who he recommended to me about title. So everybody has their expertise and you've gone you know, over and above and understood that niche of the business, which most investors really don't. And, and Dykes, as you know, you can sit in front of three attorneys and get three completely different scenarios on what to do. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And so you just go, wow. And so you're, you're not an attorney, but you're a, you're a practitioner of the business and you kind of got to the bottom of this, of the subject that most of us don't tackle. Well, it's, you know, I tell people, you know, in 40 years, I must've done something right to, uh, to get where I am. So ask me, I'll tell you about my, uh, my, my, uh, mistakes that I made along the way and how I corrected them. And uh, if that's education to save you from your, your mistakes, then have at it. That's, yeah, that's great advice. Dykes, what's your, what's your website so people that uh, follow us can take a look at what you've got to offer? I'd appreciate that. All right. My website is assets101.com. It's A-S-S-E-T-S and the digits 101.com. And uh, there you'll find uh, uh, at home study courses and list of uh, any, any uh, live or online courses that I uh, have planned to teach over the next 12 months. And if you don't see something there, it doesn't mean that I'm not gonna teach the, uh, something over the next 12 months. It's just, we haven't decided uh, what we're going to do next. And there's a little free newsletter they can sign up for too. I only send out a newsletter when I really have something to say. So we're not going to spam you uh, with a whole lot of uh, emails. You get one a month or maybe a couple at the most. All right, Dykes. And again, that's assets101.com. Okay. Dykes, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. And congratulations on the Roni Award because to me, that's the... That's the Academy Award of our industry because there's a lot of pieces of it and, and mostly a spotless reputation. So that speaks well, really highly really high of you. That was a big, uh, that was a big uh, award for me. And I appreciate it. And uh, I hope uh, everybody uh, listens to the, the other winners of that award because I'm very proud of the group that I'm a member of now. That, you, that's, that's, Exactly right. Every one of those gentlemen are the same caliber of a person. So, and that's, that's what that award kind of signifies to me. So, all right, Dykes, you have a great day and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bruce. Okay. Bye-bye. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.